several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to um, England and ride the train from England over to France, going under the channel and seeing the French countryside making the way over into Paris. And it was really cool. And that train was really fast. And, um, you know, I thought, I, I, one of these days, I would really like to get in a train and ride it all over the U.S. And maybe you've done that, but that sounds like something that would be really neat to do, and I think I would enjoy that sometime. But you know, when the train was first introduced, folks were not as excited about it as maybe you and I are today. In fact, uh, in 1829, there was a letter that was written to the president at the time, Andrew Jackson, and listen to what the letter said. January 31st, 1829. As you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty never intended the people should travel at such breakneck speed. That was signed by the governor of the state of New York at the time. That's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when you think about the changes that have come about over the course of history, and we could think of a number of them, I'm sure, we really as a people are not that different, are we? Really, we're the same. And that's why this book is not archaic, uh, even though its contents, some of which date back thousands of years, and yet it is still relevant for us today. And we still find it important, and we still love this sacred page, don't we? And that's why we're here. And so for the next few moments, I want us to think about something that um, can become problematic for us through the course of time, if we're not careful. And that's our love for the Lord, our love for Jesus. You know, if we're not careful, just as the song says, our love for Christ can grow weak when our love to Christ grows weak. It could be the fact that you may not be a Christian at all. If that's the case with you this morning, you need to love Jesus. Just plain and simple. You need to love Jesus. It could be the case that you used to love Jesus, but something happened. I don't know what, but something happened. And you have become hindered in loving Jesus. Well, you need to love Jesus again. It could be the case that you love Jesus right now, but you need to grow in that love for Jesus. And so that's what we're going to discuss. And we'll make three observations. And the first observation is this. When my love to Christ grows weak, I need to think about what the Bible says about love. What does it say about love? You know, love is the greatest commandment, isn't it? Open your Bible to the book of Matthew. We're going to look at several passages today. I hope that you did bring your Bible. And we'll be right in that text quite a bit. Matthew chapter 22. Listen to what the Bible says, beginning with verse number 36. Master, which is the great 
commandment in the law. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We pull in Mark's account and put it right here next to it. It would seem to indicate that there are three areas that we should really find ourselves in love with. And that is God, neighbor, and God's word. And so think about that. Do you really love God? It's God's greatest commandment. And when we think about that greatest commandment and, and the extent of that love that we should have for God, it is all-encompassing, isn't it? Look at it again. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And we could say it this way. We should love God with all of our cognitions, all of our thinking power. We should love God with all of our affect, our mood, our emotion. We should love God with all of our behavior. And so everything that we think, the feelings that we have, the actions that we engage in should demonstrate a love for God. And so love God with all that you have. And then love your neighbor in the exact same way. You know, we think about the commands of God. We want to itemize them, right? And we, we say, if we could just itemize all of the commands of God so that we could put a check mark next to them and be able to look over those commands, we could say, well, I've done it. I've kept all of the commands of God. And, and some of those commands that are commands that are, that are ongoing types of things, we can look back at it and say, yep, I'm still keeping that command. But the Bible doesn't list them that way, does it? In fact, if we want to just think about them in a very unique and all-encompassing way, we just go to this passage. Love God with everything that you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, love. Love is an abused word, though, isn't it? How might we abuse the word love? I really love my house. I really love my car. I really love my favorite sports team, and on and on. And yet we don't really love those things, do we? Do we? Yeah, we do sometimes, don't we? We're willing to sacrifice and, and put ourselves out there and, and, and say, you know what, this is the most important thing in my life. And yes, we will make sacrifices to, to have those things. And so maybe we do love those things, but the reality is they're just things and we shouldn't love them the way that God tells us to love Him. The word love, the word agape, which we're familiar with, means to do good for someone else without the anticipation of anything in return. And that's how we're supposed to love God. We should love God just because He loved us. Have you thought about that recently? God, I love you. I don't love you because of what you're going to do for me. 
I don't love you because of your commitment to see to my needs, Matthew 6. I don't love you because you promised heaven. But I love you because you sent Jesus. I love you because you loved me when I wasn't lovable. I love you. And I'm willing to sacrifice for you without the expectation of any benefits that I may receive. Love. Got to love God. The best way to show love for God is obedience. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 3, the Bible says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And what about those commandments? They're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Sometimes we think, well, God wants me to do this, and God expects me to do that, and God's put limitations on me there. No. We love God, period. And His commands are not burdensome. When God puts things before us and, and says, now, Neil, I have this expectation for you. What is the purpose of that? Because he knows that this is a benefit to me. And he knows that this is for my best. Just as a parent takes care of a child and, and sometimes tells a child something that that child doesn't want to hear. Has demands for that child that that child doesn't want to accept. But the parent knows better than the child. Love. Love God. And love the people of God. This is so closely connected to loving God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 22, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Love one another from a, a pure heart. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whosoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 3, love. Loving God, loving the people of God, and loving our enemies. Those are the folks that are really hard to love. Our enemies. I once heard Tom Holland say, everybody should have at least six enemies because it keeps you humble. Well, love your enemies. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, in verse number 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Did you catch that? Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies so that you may be the sons of your Father, God. We have a responsibility to our enemies to love them in order to be in a right relationship with God. And we cannot be the children of God unless we love our enemies, as difficult as it may be at times. I want you to turn over to the love chapter of the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 1.
just incidentally, if you look at verse 31 in the previous chapter, it says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There are no chapter divisions in the Bible. Man put those there. And so the thought just continues. Show unto you the more excellent way, though I speak with the tongues of men. So I'm curious what the more excellent way is. He lays it out for us. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. Another word there is love. So that's the more excellent way. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not our own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And love never fails. That's love. Love God. Love His people. Love our enemy. And never fail in that love. When my love to Christ grows weak, I need to reevaluate what the Bible says about love. But number two, when my love to Christ goes, grows weak, I need to think about what causes that love to grow weak. What causes it to grow weak? Over the last year and a half, I think we have seen um, the reality of fatigue. Fatigue. When we were doing those Zoom calls every week, multiple times a week, I had a lot of Zoom fatigue. I'm thankful we're not doing that right now as much. Did you know that there's something called compassion fatigue? If you have ever been someone's caretaker, then you may have compassion fatigue. That doesn't mean that you lack compassion, and that doesn't mean that you don't care for the person that you've been seeing to their needs for. It just means that sometimes we can become overloaded. Compassion fatigue. COVID fatigue. News fatigue. Political fatigue. And on and on. We know something about fatigue. And sometimes our love to Christ can grow weak just because of fatigue. The things that are going on in the world around us. Sometimes it grows weak because of church problems. You know, this happened in the first century. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse number 1, listen to what Jesus said. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. 
In Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 7, Paul said, You were running well. Who hindered you? And sometimes we are hindered by problems that exist within the body of Christ. Think about, think about your own story. When you studied your Bible, or maybe when you studied with a friend or a family member, and you had that wonderful document open, and you came to the recognition of your sin. And when we become Christians, we all do that. We all face the reality that our sins put Jesus on the cross and our sins stand between us in the right relationship with God and our sins cause us to be lost here and in eternity. So when you came to that realization, and upon coming to that realization, you also saw the love of God through Jesus Christ on the cross and you said, I want to do something about this. I want to do something about my sin. And I want to do something to, to show God that I love Him so much. I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to change my mind about sin and repent. I'm going to confess I believe Jesus is God's Son. I'm going to be immersed in water to have my sins washed away. And then upon doing that, I'll become a Christian. And, and you meet somebody at the church building. It's during the week you've come to this realization. Maybe you call up a friend, or maybe you call up the preacher, and maybe you call up one of the elders, and they meet you at the church building. You say, this is what I've come to, the decision that I've come to. I'm lost, and I need to be a Christian, and I want to be baptized. And there's excitement. We walk up the steps. We go down into the baptistry, into the water. And we ask the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I believe that. Believe it with all my heart. I'm now going to baptize you by the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. And you come out of that watery grave and it's like you don't have a care in the world. All of those concerns and those cares, the, those issues that you had seem to just dissipate. I, I, it doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you're never going to mess up again. But in that moment, you have tranquility. You experience remarkable peace. But a few months pass by, and you start to you start to see some imperfections in the lives of people. Maybe even in the lives of your own church family. And you become weary because you're failing to see that people are just people. And people are imperfect. People make mistakes and people do things that they shouldn't do. But some way, somehow, that has made its way into your own heart, and it's caused you to grow weak, and you've become discouraged. There's nothing good about church problems except for the fact that they can do something good for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, Paul said, 
for in the first place when you come together as a church. I hear that there are divisions among you. I, I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And yet, when you continue to read the balance of 1 Corinthians and make your way into 2 Corinthians, the church of 1 Corinthians and the church of 2 Corinthians look like two different churches. Because they allowed those problems not to make them grow weak, but to develop them and make them stronger in their love for God. Sometimes church problems make our love grow weak. But second of all, sometimes... Life problems make our love to Christ grow weak. Sometimes life is unfair. Sometimes when I'm counseling, someone will say, well, life's just not fair. How should I respond to that? No, life is not fair, and, and you don't deserve that. Is that how I should respond? Maybe the way I should respond is, you know, life is not fair. Life is never going to always be fair. But that's the reality of life. And we can either allow the unfairness of life to overwhelm us and keep us from living, or we can say, this is just a moment. This is just a season. We'll get through it. We'll move forward. And we'll be better on the other side. Somebody says, Neil, I, you don't know what I've experienced. You don't know about my relationship turmoils. You don't know about what's going on in my house. You, you don't know about what's going on with my spouse or my kids or my parents or maybe not. And it's, it's not going to be 100% fair. Is it going to make your love grow weak? Somebody experiences an accident in which an innocent man loses his wife to a drunk driver. 100% unfair. James 1 and verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Life is unfair. But, the Hebrews writer said, Let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. When my love to Christ grows weak, I need to ask myself, what is it that's causing it to grow weak? Is it a church problem? Is it a, is it a life problem? Maybe it's a Christian problem. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can get bogged down living the Christian life in such a way that we lose our ultimate focus. We've got to be so focused over here on maintaining the doctrine of Christ. And yes, we need to maintain the doctrine of Christ. But sometimes we get so focused on making sure we're dotting I's and crossing T's that we lose sight of the benefits of being a Christian or we lose sight of the service involved in being a Christian or we lose sight in the joy that's that of being a Christian all because we're bogged down right here 
Let's not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we'll reap if we faint not. Galatians 6 and verse 9. You know, it would be pretty easy to live the Christian life for a day. That would be easy. Or maybe to live the Christian life for a week or a month or even a year. But we're not talking about living the Christian life for a brief period of time. We're talking about living the Christian life for the rest of our lives. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Finally, when my love to Christ grows weak, how do we reestablish that connection? I mean, that's the important question here, right? We know what love, uh, loving God is. We, we know that there are some things that cause our love to grow weak. And, and maybe that's where we're at. Our love is weak, or maybe it's non-existent, or, or maybe it just needs to grow. But, but if it has grown weak, we need to go back and ask, how do we reestablish that love? So we go back to Revelation chapter 2. We read through the first four verses, but let's look at verse number 5 now. Underscore that first word in verse 5. Remember. Remember. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. The first thing that we have to do is remember. Someone once said that memories are past events that continue to be present experiences. When you get together with an old friend, what do you talk about? Mostly. Maybe you talk about the things that are going on in life right now. Or maybe you talk about the things that, you know, that your family is engaged in. Or maybe you talk about your, your goals and your aspirations for the future. But more than likely, if you get together with an old friend, you're talking about the past. When I was growing up, we used to go to our family reunion. We still have a family reunion every, every year. But being so far away, it's difficult to be at those, um, especially now that the, the, the new rounds are meeting down in Texas. So, uh, but the Ritchie family reunion was a, big, was a big thing. I used to love those reunions. And as a kid, we'd get together and we would go to this big park and we'd play baseball and football and we'd play horseshoes. And those are some of my memories as a kid. I remember my granddad... He was in his uh, 70s. He would get up on his hands and show out in front of all the grandkids, and he would walk on his hands. That was impressive. He used to get in trouble as a kid in school. He would walk across the desks in the classroom on his hands, uh, kind of a show, show out. But, um, but I remember those family reunions. And every now and then as a kid, I would drift over to where the older Richies were at, and they were talking about the past, talking about items from their youth. I didn't hang out there very long because that wasn't very appealing to me. But as I, as I think about it and reflect on it now, why is it that when we have those family reunions or those get-togethers that folks are talking about the same things every time they get together. All of those experiences they shared years ago, but every time they get together, they're talking about the same thing. You'd think they get tired of talking about the same thing. 
Why do they do it? They do it because they want to relive those experiences over and over and over and over again. And I suppose as we get older, we all do that sort of thing. We just want to relive it again. And so John, who writes this, he says, how do you overcome this losing your first love, verse 4? How do you overcome when, when your love to Christ grows weak? You've got to remember. In your mind, you've got to go back and relive again those experiences that you had when, when you were faithful. Sometimes, sometimes we have to remember the negative moments as well, though. Not only remembering, this is what it was like when I was faithful, but we have, we've got to remember, here's, here's where I went off track. And maybe you can pinpoint a specific occasion, and it's on that specific occasion, you just kind of gave up. And you wandered away from your, your first love. Or maybe it was a series of things, but whatever it is, you, you can remember that. You know, this is, this is where I lost track. This is where my love started to grow weak. So what do you do next? This is how simple the text is. You remember, and second of all, you repent. That's it. You remember, this, this is what it was like when everything was great. And this is where I messed up. This is where I went off track. So now I need to repent. I, I need to repent. And then I need to re-engage my heart and my life in what matters most. Remember, repent, and do the first works again. Go back to where you used to be. It's not friends, it's not family, it's not church programs, but it's Jesus. And when we live for Jesus, it makes everything better. When we live for Jesus, it makes life worth the living. One of my favorite passages is John 10 and verse 10. We know it. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. We say, Jesus came to give us the abundant life. No. Jesus did not come to give us the abundant life. Not according to John 10 and verse 10, his words. Jesus came to give us life. A life worth the living is a life that's fully in love with Jesus. Do you love Jesus? If not, we choose to love him again. Think about it. As together we now stand and as we sing.